Welcome to the Health Profiler Podcast. My name is Pamela Winger, and I am the Health Profiler. Join me in great conversations about how to connect the dots to your symptoms. I'm the why person. Do not be defined by your disease. Why do you have it? Where did it come from? And how do you get rid of it? Welcome. I am Pamela Wingert, and I am known as the Health Profiler, and I am going to welcome my guest today. His name is Val Prisakaru, and he has received a bachelor's in science and a master's in science degrees in food science, human nutrition, studying macronutrients, oncology, glycobiology, lectins, as well as rapid near-infrared imaging techniques with applications in microbiology, immunology, um, and physiology. He has over 24 years of clinical and business experience. He's written many publications and has been invited as an invited speaker at numerous presentations. He currently resides in central Illinois with his wife, Renee, and his three children. So I'm excited today to have you on and I can't wait to kind of dig into some of the things that you are going to be offering now at Kankakee Natural Foods, which I feel very blessed and grateful that it's like you're willing to kind of work with our community. It's something we really don't have in this community as somebody that has a better knowledge base of looking back into so many different things that really kind of define, I think, us as individuals. So I'm excited to kind of dive in. So why don't you first kind of tell me a little bit about like maybe the first three things I would want to know about you. Oh, absolutely. Um, so uh, what are some things that uh, people want to know about me? I have some um, practical, uh, clinical, and basic science training. I, I initially uh, started going to college out in the West Coast in uh, California. I finished out here in Illinois, in central Illinois, surrounded by uh, corn, soybean, and wheat fields at the University of Illinois uh, at Urbana-Champaign. I initially uh, was more uh, science-oriented. I was studying aerospace engineering. Then I got into anthropology, and I finally landed on nutrition, which I thought was just so fascinating because uh, unlike a hard science like physics where you do the experiment over and over again, you get the same result usually. But with the human body, it's just an enigma. It is so much more complicated. And I thought that was uh, really worth my while to get into that and, and uh, study uh, human biology, basically. So uh, the second thing is I really like putting things together. So I've always been interested in different uh, health, wellness, and diet theories, like, uh, you know, the Atkins diet, the vegan diet, zone, all these different health theories. And I initially came across um, the blood type diet back in uh, 1998. I was browsing um, a Barnes and Noble bookstore, and I saw this book. I thought, hey, eat right for your type. This is interesting. I was just discussing uh, personalization and individualization of uh, of wellness and uh, diet principles with a uh, with a friend just the day before. So I started reading this book, and it kind of made sense. 
course, back then we didn't really have ability to analyze all the genes, but the ABO gene is just one important one. And that was a really nice springboard for uh, Dr. Peter Diadamo uh, and his dad to popularize um, some of these new uh, principles that involve personalization of the diet, lifestyle, uh, supplements, medicines, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be the sec uh, second thing. And the third thing, um, I'm on the spot. I can't even think of a third thing now. There's probably a million of them. <laughs> Talk a I little bit say, about maybe the um, Opus 23. Oh, sure. So uh, so back in the year 2000, uh, Peter developed a program called SWAMI, which is uh, a web-based program to uh, help people design uh, personalized food lists and recipe books. But then in 2014, um, we were discussing uh, different ways to improve um, functionality of some of his systems. And uh, we were looking into different things. He ended up writing another program uh, called Opus 23. So 23 is because you have 23 genes. And it's a program where you, uh, you upload your DNA and you can also upload your microbiome. And the program allows practitioners to surf your genetics and figure out difficult to treat, difficult to uh, uh, improve uh, different health, uh, chronic conditions, issues, et cetera, et cetera. So it's currently used by hundreds of doctors, uh, nutritionists, nurse practitioners uh, all around the world. And uh, I'm the, uh, the top editor for it. I work with uh, Peter on this program and it is just fantastic. Uh, I also work with other programs, uh, genetic-based programs, as well as um, microbiome and also labs. So I work with a couple different programs, including uh, Self-Decode, where you could actually enter your labs. And the program, it has some you know, basic uh, artificial intelligence algorithms, and it tries to, uh, to tie in genetics with, uh, with blood labs and values. So it's really interesting times that we live in the ability to combine all these things. And honestly, just because of the strong pull that uh, mainstream uh, medical industry has had the last few decades, we really should be a lot more advanced than we are. And so we're actually playing catch up right now. And uh, just because the whole world is kind of in a state of, you know, PTSD from all the things that happened the last three, um, three four years, uh, I think we're we're at a better spot now because people are becoming more aware, more aware of uh, drugs they're taking, supplements, foods, et cetera. Uh, they're becoming aware of their bodies. Uh, they're, they're increasing autonomy from uh, having their doctor be in charge of their health to them realizing that this is a paradigm shift that needs to happen and they need to take back control of their health uh, as opposed to um, you know some allopathic practitioner who may have good intentions and uh, may know a few things but ultimately um, it is a it is a, a reclamation of independence and this is a health independence and health freedom is it's a really big deal because if you don't have health you, you don't have anything you're 
you're lying in a bed waiting to die. That's no way to go about, <laughs> you know, uh, living. So um, I yeah, I'm really agree. glad. Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like it's like I can see the shift also. I've been working in the health industry for a long time also. And I find that it's like it is shifting. Even I feel like insurance companies are, you know, demanding more things that have to be done before you can even get answers or you have to have a referral or, you know, I think people are getting frustrated. And so I can see their frustration. Um, but the way that we would view the body, and I think you would agree with this, is that we need to look at the body as a whole. And so it's like, I think that concept of going from one doctor to the next to the next or having several doctors on your team that don't uh, talk to each other. And so then they don't know like, you know, all these different um, interactions with things that you're doing. So people are really not getting a really good idea or good look at really what all that's, you know, causing. I think I was most impressed when I first met you that it's like, I feel like it is a missing piece to our puzzle. And because we don't talk about, you know, genetics in the way of nutritional needs, I think it's something that is definitely missing. So in other words, I feel like with genetics, it's like most of us would see, uh, think of like our ancestors, right? The 23andMe, but going deep enough to be able to look at the um genetics in a way of what am I prone to getting and, you know, things like that. So let's start with, uh, if you could help me to understand, I wrote down several things here that are things that you kind of specialize in. So getting an idea of each of these and what they represent or what they mean. So the first one would be nutrigenomics. How would you explain what nutrigenomics is? Uh, oh, uh, definitely. And also, I just wanted to thank you for setting this up because I think this is awesome. And I've met you. I've come up to Kankakee. Your place is really, really, really out of control. Incredible. You have all these different uh, uh, health-minded uh, devices and machines. And the supplement store has some of the top quality products that people expect when they go, like they really want to improve their health. So I just wanted to just give a little reminder and shout out. So the people listening to this, Thanks. you really need to stop by the store, not just because I said so, not just because I'm uh, plugging it or whatever, but it, it's real. It's a place where you can actually help heal yourself. Thanks. So I wanted to throw that out there. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> nutrigenomics. What in the world is nutrigenomics? Well, any kind of omics is like the study of. So nutrigenomics is a, the study of uh, foods and genetics. So how foods, drinks, different supplements you take, or even medicines you take, uh, environment, uh, exercise, uh, meditation, how all of these things interact with your genes and how your genes interact with all of these things. So if you have uh, blood labs, then your doctor knows, oh, you know what? You have some prediabetes. We have to, we have to nip that in the bud now so it doesn't become a bigger problem later. Or let's say you have a boy, you know, your cholesterol is kind of starting to get high, Mrs. Jones. We're gonna have to uh, start in interacting with that and uh, uh, doing an intervention. So then it doesn't become a problem. Well, genetics is just like labs and it just provides a lot more information. Uh, in some ways, 
genetics is more important than labs. In other ways, labs is more important than genetics. But really, this isn't like 2002 where it costs millions of dollars to run your genetics. It's really cheap to do. For a couple hundred bucks, you have all this information and it's really, really nice to have. Um, same thing with microbiome. To have microbiome data, you kind of want to know, do you have inflammation associated bacteria in your gut? Or do you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis associated, obesity associated, all the different bacteria in your gut are associated based on how much you have of this species or that species with different diseases. So it's important to get a, a microbiome test too. But so for nutrigenomics, me, go ahead. Let me ask, uh, so you're saying, let me make sure that I understand this. You're saying that even Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or some of these what we would think that are genetic diseases could be caused from the microbiome that is in the gut system. So some type of bacteria that actually could affect that disease. Is that what you mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, there are bacteria uh, specific species and uh, you know, genus class order, just different rankings of bacteria, or it could be multiple. It could be like, you know, seven or eight different species of some type of bacteria, which can increase or decrease your chances of uh, getting some uh, issue, health issue or disease or worsening it. Absolutely. Okay. So that also looks at the microbiome would also look at fungus or yeast or candida type and viruses also, right? Exactly. And okay. people don't realize that they, they, when they think of their, they think of their gut and their a large intestine, they're just thinking of bacteria. Right. And there's uh, there's over a thousand different types of uh, different species or strains of bacteria uh, in your gut. <clears throat> with uh, with microbiome testing, you could actually test about 250 to over 300 of these uh, of these strains that are the important ones. And uh, with genetics, you could you could test for thousands and thousands of SNPs or uh, you know uh, variations in your genetic code that makes everyone different from everyone else. And with this information, um, you have so much good quality info, you could actually uh, help improve outcomes with it. And there's a lot of research coming out showing that this is indeed happening. And you know, maybe the FDA is a little slow to approve this and approve that. Maybe there's a little bit of politics involved. I'm not gonna deny that either. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. But it certainly works. So, Epigenetics is what I would know a little more, and that's more like your ancestries, correct? It's like the way that I uh, saw that was that your DNA could be represented from even emotional trauma from like past generations. Is that more what epigenetics would be? Uh, that's right, exactly. So epigenetics is, a, it's not a change in your DNA as far as like the sequence, so like, for example, in some gene and, you know, one of your three billion base pairs or letters, maybe you have an A instead of a G, and maybe that gives you, um, you know, sickle cell anemia, uh, which uh, you have low hemoglobin, you're anemic, but uh, you're resistant to malaria. So a lot of people in the Mediterranean uh, area, um, North Africa, Middle East, you know, it's hot uh, and humid. So maybe that, that mutation is a good thing. Right. So that would be uh, a difference in the letters. But epigenetics is not that uh, it's the letters are all the same, but it's a methylation and other modifications to the DNA. 
So what's a methylation? That's just like a, a carbon and a couple of hydrogen atoms jump on top of the DNA and get deposited there by an enzyme and it is stuck to the DNA. And so it's kind of like uh, it changes things and it makes it harder to make that protein or whatever. So it really, uh, it's like a mutation that can uh, disappear after a few generations of uh, proper uh, you know, health and lifestyle. So for example, at the end of World War II, there was the famous uh, hunger winter. It's a, it's a Dutch word for a hunger winter. So uh, at the end of uh, like in the winter of 1944, the Germans were blocking supply trains uh, in German occupied Netherlands. So people were starving to death and researchers used that. Of course, it was a horrible thing, but we're learning from it. So people who were uh, born right after that, they were in the womb while the mothers were starving, which is a horrible thing. And they had health problems. They had a lot of health issues, cardiovascular disease, all sorts of issues. And here's the crazy thing. Their kids also had those issues. And even though the mothers were well fed, you know, this was 1944. So their kids would be 1954, 64. So it would be like in the 60s that these people were having kids. And their kids were also having health problems. And then their kids also had some health problems. So this wow. is like a transgenerational thing. It's just absolutely insane how this works. They ran these same experiments on chickens. Um, they, uh, they had uh, different types of birds, pictures of birds fly over chickens and they kept the chickens indoors so they wouldn't know what kind of bird did what, what kind of birds was a bird of prey. So after 13 generations, chickens still knew it was hardwired into their genetics. What kind of birds flying overhead? If it was a, if it was a bird that was not a bird of prey, the chicken wouldn't care. And then as soon as they saw a bird, that was exactly the type of bird that was a bird of prey. It would run away. It just knew. It was hardwired into them. It was just incredible how these things happen. Yeah, um, and yeah, so a lot of that can uh, can speak to the trauma of uh, different people all over the world, whether it's um, you know people trying to survive, uh, you know, uh, back in uh, you know uh, even before World War II, you know, with uh, Lenin and Stalin. Uh, and Mao, all these people being, uh, you know, enslaved, basically starved to death. Uh, uh, people in the uh, slave clan, slave camps uh, of the Nazis. Uh, you know, Jews starving to death. Uh, African Americans being brought over on slave ships. I mean, basically, humanity has just been in just like one long. Um, uh, one long, almost never-ending series of uh, traumatic events. Right. So uh, that's going to take its toll on uh, on people, and it's going to make them a little bit edgy, and uh, it's going to have uh, negative health effects. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to undo that so people can be happy and peaceful again and healthy. So then I would also say that it's like, because I've seen, I've done your DNA test, so it's like I've seen some of the things that can come across. Like, for instance... Um, I think there was one specifically on like addiction, right? It's like you could even see if there's a snippet or something to say that you were prone for like even depression or things like that, correct? It's like 
So that's also really helpful to have a maybe a guide to be able to know. It's like, well, if I already have that in my genes, then I know that I could maybe, you know, do something about that, correct? That's right. Yeah. And that's the reason why we do this. Uh, so some people are afraid of doing DNA testing. They say, oh my gosh, I don't want to know. Yeah. And the reason they don't want to know is because of fear. Uh, and fear is a very, very strong motivator. Um, the reason the reason we don't want to know is because it'll cause too much fear. So we're just trying to do harm avoidance. We don't want to hear about it. Um, and there's something to it. I mean, there, there was a big study done in Europe. People who were given a cancer diagnosis, their chances of dropping dead of a heart attack the next two weeks went up 30,000%. So imagine you're just fine. You get a diagnosis of cancer, but, but then you die of a heart attack a week later. So fear is a really big deal. Yeah, it's a big and deal. And it's probably the number one issue right now. Uh, in the U.S. and worldwide is how you reduce fear and increase love. And um, uh, this is one thing that we're tackling is with mental health, is uh, um, the ability to be more resilient and the ability to, um, to help yourself improve your quality of life. Yeah. And uh, the way you do that is you get information. I mean, are you afraid of high cholesterol? Uh, do you, are you going to not get a blood lab because the doctor says, hey, you should get a blood test to check your cholesterol. So do you say, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. No, you, you go check it because the doctor said, hey, it's probably not a bad idea to check. So it's the same thing with genetics. People who have, they say, oh, the, the two worst things to die of, right? A cancer and Alzheimer's because it's a slow, painful death. Well, if you actually take precautions, you can reduce risk of dying of cancer. And nowadays, there's a lot of new technologies out there, and some of them look really promising. Same thing with Alzheimer's. Right. Uh, people who take care of themselves with the Alzheimer's gene have uh, uh, less chances of getting it than the average person without the Alzheimer's genes. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really big deal. And you, if you have the worst of it, the major Alzheimer's, half of those people never get it. They live to be 70, 80, 90, 100, a buck oh five no Alzheimer's. What day is it? They know the day. Who are your relatives? They know the relatives. They know everything. Zero Alzheimer's. They might have some cognitive age decline. Everybody does a little bit. They're getting a little older, but there's no Alzheimer's. How can there be no Alzheimer's if you have the Alzheimer's genes and you're like 90 or 100? It's because it's not just the genetics. It's it's the environment and what you do. Right. So explain just a little bit more because I do have a lot of clients and I know no one in our area is really talking about the MTHFR gene. So if someone has that gene, is this something that you can help them to understand what that means? And that would require maybe like um, diet changes and things like that. How can you help someone that if they find out they have the MTHFR gene? Oh, sure. So the MTHFR gene is a very important uh, gene. Uh, it makes the MTHFR enzyme called by the same name. And what this thing does is it turns, uh, it turns vitamin B9 or folic acid into the active folic acid called methylfolate. And some people, they go, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Like you're supposed to take uh, uh, methylated uh, B vitamins because they're better than regular. 
It's just they're more absorbable because they're already in a more active form. So it doesn't, it's not slowed down by maybe some gene that not, that's not working as well. So what does uh, MTHFR do? Uh, it turns homocysteine into methionine. Homocysteine, you don't want too much of because it's associated with cardiovascular problems. And methionine is just an amino acid that's good for you. So it recycles it. And MTHFR activity is important uh, mainly for heart health and uh, strokes, but also for uh, pregnancy issues. You want to make sure maybe you get a little more uh, folic acid if you're uh, having a baby, especially if you have the MTHFR mutation. And for sure, if you have both copies of it, because then your levels are even lower, maybe you need even more B vitamins, especially uh, folic acid. Um, and there are some other risk factors as, uh, as well, some associated with um, high blood pressure, um, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, Parkinson's. Uh, but yeah, the main ones are um, heart health and stroke. So in other words, it's like that's something that would show up in the DNA test that you do is whether or not they have the MTHFR gene that would show up. Oh, yeah. Uh, first, um, it's not just the MTHFR mutation. Uh, because there's there's several mutations on the same gene. So we would look up all the mutations. And once we do that, then we look at a network map, which is basically a map of your entire DNA as it relates to uh, uh, MTHFR. So there's other genes connected to MTHFR. There's like uh, MTRR, and then there's FOLH1. And all these genes kind of work together to make sure that you're able to methylate stuff, which is to add carbon and hydrogen atoms to different molecules in your body. It's called methylation. Some people over-methylate. Some people don't methylate enough. If you have the big MTHFR mutations, you, you maybe you don't methylate as well. Uh, so after we look at- this, this is something that can be, like in other words, altered in some way, like by taking the right type of B9 also um, foods that would be, you know, the right sources, right? It's like you could get this under control. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So if you take the right uh, supplements and you eat the right foods, you're going to be feeling better. Um, back in the old days, people didn't have all the chemicals, pesticides, artificial sweeteners, Right. Um, all the different, uh, you know, fried fats. Nobody fried their food in soybean oil and had all these uh, trans fatty acids back in the heyday. They fried their foods in lard. Sure, they may have had a little bit higher cholesterol because of that. But if you actually look at all the different fats, um, so, uh, trans fats and uh, oxidized uh, soybean oils and omega-6 fats, they're actually worse for you than uh, than saturated fat. Not, I'm not saying saturated fat's great for you. For some people, it's better than others. But the worst is going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be soybean oil, vegetable oil, things fried in it, which is pretty much everything. And the Midwest diet is uh, is almost a mainstay. And part of that has to do with big ag and, you know, the all the different uh, big industries that are pushing commercials and pushing research and guiding this or that for better or for worse combined with um, epigenetics. So think about the people who settled in Kankakee. These are people that are 
surviving famines, right? You're on some, uh, you're on some little wagon uh, being pulled by horses and whenever, 16, 17, 1800s, uh, those were really harsh conditions. And you're a settler. Settlers are like big time survivors, right? So they, they might've had their own Dutch famine of 1945 back in 1745, who knows? Yeah. Um, so it's important for uh, people who are surviving not to starve to death. That's why grandma likes to fatten everybody up for Thanksgiving and for Christmas because it's literally programmed in her DNA and your DNA that there's a chance you may starve to death in the spring. So yeah. we're trying to change some of that right now. Right. And and it, we're having very good effects uh, with it too, by the way. So when I got my results of the DNA test, there was um, always like a kind of a page that would go over all the snippets. Can you explain what a snippet is? Oh, sure. So a snippet, uh, people like to call it a SNP. A SNP is a SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism. So what does that mean? A nucleotide is just a letter. We have about 3 billion letters that make up our DNA code. And each, uh, each letter is either going to be A, G, C, or T. <clears throat> and in some cases, U, but that's when it's being transcribed. That's something else. So basically, we have four letters. And throughout all the 3 billion uh, base pairs or letters, <clears throat> only about 0.1% uh, varies. So basically, almost all of them are the same, regardless of what person you test and do their DNA. So we just look at that small percentage that changes, and we could find common mutations where, you know, maybe 20%, 30% of the population have it. And we can look at kind of rare mutations, like maybe 2% have it. And then we can look at stuff that's uh, really rare, like, you know, maybe one in 50,000 or one in 100,000 people have it. Those are a little bit more, uh, usually more severe because um, severe mutations usually die out, right? Because the, if the person dies or the baby dies, then uh, they're not going to have kids and that doesn't get passed on. So SNPs are just changes in the, uh, in the letters. Uh, one letter change, sometimes it could be a deletion, like it's just not even there. So the whole DNA code shifts, called a frame shift mutation. Uh, other times it could be an insertion where you insert a letter and then the whole code moves forward one. And that usually like really changes things a lot. Usually these don't uh, don't lead to like something that can support life. Usually it's like, a, it's just like a one letter change. And oh. uh, you can have... Um, more inflammation, less inflammation. Uh, every SNP can can be good or bad, just depending on the situation. So like this is my results of my Alzheimer's test, and it tells me that I'm in the 29th percentile. So you have a smiley face, which I really thought was kind of, you know, really kind of a cute way to put it, but less likely and more likely. But if I'm only in the 29th percentile, the way that I look at that is, that I am less likely to get Alzheimer's, correct? Uh, right. So 29th percentile is good. I'm like I'm like 65th percentile. So what does that mean? That means that um, only 29% of people have uh, better Alzheimer's genetics than you do. So you, oh. you uh, you're actually in a good spot. 
uh, I know some people that are really high on the Alzheimer's, like 98th, 99th percentile. That means that they're a lot more likely to get Alzheimer's than someone else. And uh, people who are who have the bad Alzheimer's genetics, they could undo that. They, they don't have to be on the 99th percentile. They can make changes where they're only on the 30th, 40th percentile. So there are really meaningful things you can do. And we have the research and the knowledge to do it. And so that is using like technology with the genetic testing, like for instance, looking at their blood, looking at other factors, correct? It's like that's exactly. how you help to make a more personalized, individualized, you know, type of program for them to make sure that it's like we can get them out of that, you know, higher percentile, correct? That is exactly right, Pamela. Yep. So the risk factors for Alzheimer's of course, being older, like being over 75 is a risk factor. So if someone is over 75, we take more action. Right. Also, uh, being female. Uh, for some reason, females, a uh, little bit increased chances of getting it. Um, air pollution also increases risk of Alzheimer's. So it depends where you live. Obviously, uh, the Kankakee area probably doesn't have as much air pollution as, let's say, if you're living in downtown Chicago. Um, another big factor is uh, poor sleep issues. So if you if you have a family history of Alzheimer's, um, if you have Alzheimer's genetics, some of the other epigenetic markers we look at that can uh, that can uh, give us a better information on the, what are the chances of it. If you score high on these, um, you're going to need better sleep <clears throat> because the body clears the brain of uh, dead cellular debris flushes, rinses, some would say bathes the brain in this synovial type fluid. And there's like, I mean, they've done studies on this. This is really incredible stuff. So your your brain has, the, there are these waves of fluid that that go from your spinal cord into your brain and back. And it like, it cleans out the brain at night. So people who have sleep issues, they're gonna have way higher risk of Alzheimer's. I'd rather have the Alzheimer's gene and get pretty decent sleep then have uh, no Alzheimer's genetics and uh, and have crappy sleep because your your odds of getting is probably going to be a little bit higher than the Alzheimer's gene wow. person. And you would never hear an allopathic doctor talk about that, right? It's like you either get a scan and you find out, oh, you have the plaque that's you know in the brain that now you are prone, or you have Alzheimer's. But no one is talking about this, you know, information. And I feel like it's like people are frustrated because they don't understand their body the way that they need to understand it. And so that's what I appreciate about your knowledge base is that it's like you can help people to decipher the information that's going to help to keep them healthy, but also help be preventative and proactive, which I think that's where the future is headed, that we can't just sit back and just expect that the world is kind of changing drastically more and more, and especially after COVID, that we need to take control. You kind of said that in the beginning. So I feel like it's like, there's not been a better time or opportunity for us to put together these types of programs to help our clients. So I'm really excited about that. Here's um, another one I found out, um, alcohol. So people who drink, um, if you don't have the Alzheimer's gene, some alcohol, reduces the risk of Alzheimer's probably because it relaxes you. And, yeah. you know, especially if it's like maybe red wine, it's got some 
polyphenols and some you know, beneficial antioxidants. However, if you have the Alzheimer's gene, alcohol is not that good for you. And it increases the risk of Alzheimer's. There was this one study where it's like even one drink a month increased it a little bit. But the, I think the study was maybe a little bit flawed. I don't think it's that bad. But definitely, um, you know, having like, you know, one or two glasses of wine a day for someone without the Alzheimer's gene, maybe it's not that bad for you. But if you uh, if you do have it, um, I would probably not have more than one alcoholic drink a day or maybe even just like maybe limited it to maybe one every other day. So it's a big issue with uh, people who who like to, you know, throw back a few beers on the weekend. Maybe that's not such a good idea as you get older if yeah. you have that gene. So in my hand, I have printouts of all the different things that came across and not even everything on my DNA test. So everything from snippets for the flu and whether or not I'm sensitive to glyphosates or heart attack or testosterone and anxiety. It's like, so I feel like it's like, this is something that people just don't even understand that can help them to get a better handle on what their body is doing. So I, I'm excited to kind of still work closely at working together to be able to um, bring some seminars to our store. Cause I feel like it's like having you here live is also very beneficial in the sense that we can educate and teach them more and more about what their body is trying to tell them. So whether it's blood work, we do um, lab work here every Saturday. So I have a lab that comes, we have access to, um, of course, the machines in the bioenergy center. But I feel like this type of information you're not going to get from allopathic medicine. And this is something I feel like we need to just learn more and more about so that we can be more proactive with our body. Um, the, the other thing before we kind of wind up here is I really want people to understand that some of the types of testing that they're doing out there for like colon and gut health, they're doing the upper GIs and the lower GIs. I feel like it's like we're not, they can't see bacteria when they're in there, correct? It's like they can do a biopsy or they can figure out whether or not it's like maybe H. pylori or something. But I've always been under the understanding that those bacteria hide. So if they hide, is the microbiome test something that can go in and actually look deeper at the information of trying to figure out like what these uh, bacteria and viruses could be causing. Like I put down IBS-like symptoms, SIBO, diverticulitis, losis. You know, in my practice, I always tell people, don't be defined by your disease. Like in other words, just because you've been diagnosed with SIBO or diverticulosis or whatever, it's like that doesn't define you. We need to figure out the why. And I would think that this microbiome test would be the why, correct? Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, with the microbiome test, for example, let's say somebody has a fatty liver, right? Or some a little bit of cirrhosis. We could look up the different bacteria that's associated with uh, uh, fatty liver. It's called uh, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver. And for example, if you don't have enough uh, fecalibacterium, that's just a type of bacterium, or if you have uh, too much, uh, too much uh, E. coli, then that's going to increase risk of fatty liver. And this is 
this was done on actual, like they took, you know, a bunch of fatty liver patients and, and healthy people. And they found out that there, there's some significant differences in about a dozen different uh, strains of bacteria. And it's really not that hard. If you have fecalibacterium, uh, if you don't have enough to fix it, um, you could actually uh, fix it with uh, resistant starch. That's a type of uh, fiber, a high fiber diet, um, artichokes, uh, quercetin. There's a, there's a few things that really can, can fix the, um, uh, that specific uh, low level of uh, fecalibacterium. Or let's say you have too much colincella. There's another bacteria that's associated with uh, a lot of different disease states, people having too much colincella. And what you do with that is uh, resveratrol and beta-cetosterol inhibits colincella. And so those are very common supplements people could just take, and it's going to knock that colincella down to half the levels or even less. And that's going to be associated with reduced uh, symptoms and all sorts of things. So that just leads me to know that it's like you are also well-versed in knowing what to do with the information, correct? It's like if you see certain things show up in the microbiome or certain things that would go along with MTHFR or whatever, you would be able to, as a certified <clears throat> functional nutritionist, to be able to help them with the answers of what to do also. Right. And so you, you treat the labs, but you also look at the genetics. You also look at the microbiome. You also look at history, family history, personal history. Like, you know, maybe you don't have the, uh, you know, the lactose intolerance gene, but when you drink milk, uh, your stomach hurts. So it doesn't matter if you have it or not, right? Personal history, personal experience. Right. You know, oh, you don't have high um, risk of uh, getting allergies, but hey, guess what? I, I'm an allergic to this, this, and that. So it's not all genetics. It's not all labs. It's a combination. Right. Well, I feel like it's like, let's end by just kind of like saying here that it's like, we are going to start setting up appointments and um, getting a list together. But I think we've decided July 15th might be a live um, seminar at the center. So we'll start advertising that. Um, if someone wants to make an appointment with you here at the store, it's like the um, cost of the genetic testing and the initial uh, visit is $299. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. That's right. And then follow-up consults are $199. The microbiome, that would also be the same price, and that includes the test? Uh, the microbiome is the same, yeah, $299, and that includes the test. That's right. Okay. Um, and then we want to kind of just keep educating. So I feel like it's like maybe what we could do is once a month get on and actually really just kind of talk about questions and things that people are asking. But I cannot tell you how excited I am to bring you to our community. I think this is going to be a really ongoing um, relationship that I feel like our clients have been waiting for a long time. So Super excited to bring you to the store, to our Bioenergy Center, and can't wait to just see what this is going to bring for our clients. I totally agree. I'm I'm super excited as well. <laughs>